God covets our, your heart. Am I on? Yeah. God covets your heart. Put that slide up of those two little girls. I want you to think about this with me. Remember when one of your little ones went from an angel to a demon? <laughs> that little precious little innocent thing that was lying flat in the crib could sit up next to another precious little thing and fight over a sippy cup? What's those two girls' problem? Is it because, is their problem that there aren't enough sippy cups in the world? No. Is it because they have a personality conflict? No. Is it because their parents haven't been giving them enough love and affection and they're feeling very starved and so they're, they're fixating on a sippy cup? No. Their problem is they don't love God and they don't love each other. They love themselves. They were born that way, and so were you. We all have the same problem, and we covet. And our covetousness shows up when we go to grab, but it also shows up when we clench tight when others go to grab, and we get really upset. If they take, move in front of us on the highway, they, they get in the, in the line in front of us when there's a, a long line behind us. Suddenly, our well-adjusted adult mentality becomes childish and we become a rule maker and a rule enforcer and we say, hey, there's a line here. Get behind me. <laughs> Today, we talk about the last two commandments. They go together. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet. The first one is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. And the second one is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, servants, animals, or any of his possessions. You can see why we put them together. You shall not covet. Why? Because people who are selfish do covet. And the whole Ten Commandments were made to confront people. They are first a mirror to show you what you look like, and they do not lie. So I've already been talking about coveting like a mirror would been talking about instances, and some of you have had that sheepish grin like, yeah, I, I've coveted that way. I couldn't make a list long enough maybe to cover everybody, but everybody knows they struggle with coveting. And God does too, and that's why he says, it's one of the big ten you shall not covet. Jesus' brother named James wrote the first book of the New Testament. You might say, no, wait a minute, James is not the first book. It's way down the line. Yes, it was the first book that was written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are grouped together and put at the front because they're the life of Christ, but they were written later. James was the first book written by James, who is the brother of Jesus. Jesus is ascended into heaven, and James is the head of the Jerusalem church, which is the mothership of all of Christianity when he wrote. And the Christians had been dispersed by Saul and other people that were persecuting them, and they were in little house churches, and he writes this pastoral letter. It's beautiful, it's hard-hitting, it's honest, and it's great about things like favoritism and covetousness and, and getting back to the basics of faith in Jesus and the love that drives us as Christians. So here we go. We're going to look at James chapter 4 because he peels back the layers of the onion. You're going to notice here when I read the first few verses... He's saying what I said about those little girls and about us. He's saying it's not the outer things, it's the inner man 
that has the problem, and God has the solution. So here we go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Too, too few sippy cups? Bad personality conflicts? No. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you charge it on your card. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now here's a hard-hitting verse. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, he means by coveting, by fighting over things, becomes an enemy of God. Remember I said the little girls don't love God? I ratted them out. Or do you think that Scripture says, for no reason at all, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. We've got to stop right there. The root of our unhappiness is almost always us. And the, the cause is us as well. We tend to want temporal things that please our desires rather than to want God who made us. And God has feelings. I know sometimes when you talk about people having feelings, we might say, well, you shouldn't have those feelings and you need to get mature and, and just pull up your bootstraps and buck up and God, you need to figure it out. No, God has feelings and they're pure. And when he made people, he made people to be in a wonderful, understanding, enlightened relationship with him. As their maker, you're God's idea. I'm God's idea. As their savior, you're, God's redeemed you. As his, your best friend. We tend to think of our spouse as a best friend, and that's not a bad thing because God says that's a suitable best friend. So God says, I'm your best friend. If you're getting all upset that you don't, can't get what you want or you're fighting or engineering or you're working way too many hours to try to get ahead and you're killing yourself and everybody else to, and you're worried all the time about, you're coveting. And the real problem is that you don't want me. Because I'm free. I made you. I love you. I'm with you. I'll take care of it. In fact, James says, God is so serious that he says, a lot of this stuff that you work so hard to get for yourself, I would just give you if you'd ask. As a friend of mine. But he said, sometimes you ask with a covetous heart. Like this. Oh Lord, I will be happy if you'll at least let me get out of this old clunker car and get into a newer one. I'll be happy. Please do that for me. He said you, you do it to spend it on your pleasures at times, and you don't want me or the service or the, the, the gift that it would be for other people to bless them. He says, so sometimes I'm not even giving it to you because of that. But 
Here's James' point in the first half. To be a friend of the world like that is to be adulterous to God. He said it, you adulterous people. So it's like this. If I went to Mary at the, in the middle of this week, sat her down and said, there's something big I want to talk to you about. Uh, I want to be happy in this marriage, and the only way I can be happy in this marriage, I've laid my eyes on another woman. I want to have an adulterous affair with her, but I want you to put up with it. I want you to not leave me because of it, upset the kids. Don't even tell them. Just let me have this adulterous affair, this love affair with this other person. What are you thinking right now? Is the hair standing up on the back of your neck? That's terrible. James says that's the way we are when we say to God, I just got to have this or that to be happy. My life has to go a certain way. I got to get what I want. I got to get what I need to be happy. You're just not paying. I need to talk to you as my sugar daddy. You need to take care of this because I want all this. God says, you're in love with somebody else. And if I talk that way to Mary, you'd tell her, he straightens up faster, you'd leave him. Because he's an adulterer. But does God leave us? Isn't that the strangest love? He doesn't leave us. He confronts us to win us back. Flip to the next slide. God wants our heart. There's God wanting our heart. Now flip to the next slide. We're going to go to the next verses. James chapter 4, verse 6. Look at the first sentence. But he gives more grace. Uh, if you're a Bible student, you're trying to read through the Bible and find the logical connection of everything. This one's a stumper. Because he's talking about you adulterous people, da-da-da. But he gives more grace. And then he goes on to talk about God opposing the proud. So let's put it together. It's the grace of God that he made you. You didn't ask to be made. It's the grace of God that he saved you through his son on the cross. It's the grace of God that he got to you at that good news through somebody who held it in, in a, as an important thing and preached it to you. It's the grace of God that he made your heart open up to it and that you believe and it's the grace of God that he hasn't rejected you because you still struggle with covetousness even after he's done all that for you. It's the grace of God that he stays in there and confronts you. And this is how he does it. The next line. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God will oppose a child of his, a lover of his, who's acting out of covetousness and fighting and quarreling by opposing them by making it so that that thing which they covet doesn't actually make them happy. Or he'll keep them from getting it. Or he'll make it be a problem in their life once they get it. God is involved in everything. And he opposes covetous people who are supposed to be in a love affair with him by frustrating their lives and making them empty because they're not filled up with him. So, on your happiness barometer, on a scale of the Fahrenheit scale of 32 degrees is freezing and 106 is Texas heat in August, where you been in happiness, happiness being way up there? 
biggest, the biggest issue at this moment of a sermon about covetousness is that you're able to discern the difference between being brokenhearted over disappointing things or being brokenhearted over you disappointing God. Did you hear me? The biggest discernment at this point in a sermon about covetousness is that you're able to figure out, with God's help, the difference in your life of of having a broken heart over being disappointed about things not being what they should be in your mind for you, or you disappointing God. I remember several times happening, but the first time it was clear to me that I was the problem. I was a freshman in college. I was driving down a rural highway in East Texas, and I was pondering this gospel text that I read to you about the lamp, the eyes, the lamp of the body, and you cannot love both God and money. And I was a poor college student, feeling bad that I was a poor college student, and I knew some rich college students whose mama and daddy were rich and made them rich. And it made me uncomfortable and angry and frustrated because I felt I was as good or better than they were and I was a poor college student. And it dawned on me, they were not the problem. I was the problem. Because it's not whether you have or not, it's whether you are or not. A lover of God who knows God's love. And I loved mammon, money, more than God, and I, even though I didn't have it. Do you understand? And that's the difference between being disappointed over stuff and being disappointed over disappointing God, being brokenhearted. And that's what James is saying. Now, I'd like to stand up here and very proudly tell you that it hasn't, it's been so much better ever since. But it isn't always so much better. And if a preacher is giving you a transparent picture, all he's trying to do is to show you your heart. So listen carefully. I was online. My, my youngest son goes to University of North Texas, and he's hoping to be a kicker and punter. And the season's coming like in three weeks. So a proud daddy. I'm online looking to see if anybody in any of the chat rooms at UNT are saying anything about the kickers. Basically, they're not. But I ran across an article about the coach who last year was his first year at age 37. He's 38 now. And they, he had such a good year at 5 and 6, <laughs> they made a bowl game because Texas University of Texas grades were lower than UNT, so they got to go to the Dallas Bowl. They, that, that they gave him a five-year contract for over a million dollars a year at 38 years old. And I want to stand up here and tell you I'm so happy for him. My first thought was, preachers have a more important job than football coaches. And look what I make. I was back in college again, right? I was that poor college student feeling better then. And I compared my life to his. And I was unhappy and I was preparing a sermon on covetousness at the same time. You see how deep this is? How common it is? How important it is to let the commandments purge you. Adulterous Donald. Friend of the world and not a friend of God. Mourn. If your joy is over worldly things, he says mourn and grieve. So I'll read the rest. You'll see what he's saying. 
7. Submit yourselves to God then. If you're like Donald and you go, that's, that's me. Then he says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you with that temptation to covet. Come near to God. He will come near to you. In other words, he has grace. He's not left you. He's not, he may be disappointed, but he's not going to reject you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Repent. You double-minded person. Love God, love things. Love God, love things. Grieve, mourn, and wail. It's okay to be sorry over your sins. He says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Americans don't like to hear that. Everything's happy. We need to be positive. Don't... No, sometimes we need to mourn because that's the purging process. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up. You know why? Because He loves you with an indestructible love. So I want to just stop right there and say, if you've been unhappy lately because you've been measuring your life and you've got all these disappointments that are like weeds in the garden of your heart, you need to pull them all out right now in sadness that you've let them grow up there as if they were more important than God in the first place. It's not the weeds, it's the, your heart that you let them get, you let all of that be so important. And you get before God and say, I'm hearing that you love me enough to confront me. I get it. That my brokenheartedness has been about my life instead of about you. And I'm brokenhearted that I've wasted that much time understanding this and I'm back. And he says, I will lift you up. I'm lifting you up right now. And I'm telling you, I love you as much as the day I thought of you, the day I made you, the day I saved you, and the day you got it right. I love you as much right now. I'll always love you. And God has always been obsessed with loving you. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, it was because of covetousness. Did you know that? They didn't believe God was good. They coveted the tree, and they went after it. And God came into the garden, and he said what? I'm scrapping the whole project. You're a couple of big losers. I'm going to start with two new people. No. He said, I will put enmity between you, devil, and the woman, and he'll crush your head. He's been obsessed with sending Jesus since before they sinned. And then in the Old Testament... The timeless God kept telling the story of the Christ before it ever happened. And the apex of the entire Old Testament is Isaiah 53, where he tells the story of being on the cross and pierced for our transgressions, but everybody thought he was suffering for himself. And, and, and his bones were not broken, but he was, he was broken himself. And that it, was, it was brought us healing, and he justified many people. All of that was spoken in past tense in Isaiah before Jesus came because for God, it's always been an obsession. Jesus has always been the sacrifice Savior for you. He's always forgiving you. He's always covering your sins. It's always finished. It's always buried. It's always from as far as the east is from the west. God loves you more than you will ever, ever know. So when you come and say, I'm brokenhearted that I've been covetous again, he says, I love you and I forgive you. And that is the secret to a relationship with God that you know his love is undestructible. You know, the, the most strong relationship is not one based on performance. That's a weak relationship. The strongest relationship is one based on forgiveness. And people experience this. Some of you in your marriages experience this. Mothers and 
fathers with their children experience this. Their children experience it. When you go through hurting another person, you both know you did it. You both know it was wrong. You both are very familiar with the pain. And the one hurt forgives. And the one that did the hurting understands that they have forgiven, that it was a egregious error, and they have been forgiven. That couple or those two people, whoever they are, friends or family, they have an indestructible relationship because forgiveness holds them together and forgiveness takes care of all the wrongs. And the reason we cut people out of our lives and we manage less and less relationship is because we're not all that great at forgiving. That's why we need God. But God is great at it. So when you think about the Ten Commandments and this one that strikes close to the heart because it's about the heart, you've got to understand something. Jesus died for sins of the heart too. Not just sins of your actions or your words. He died for the sins of the heart too. He loves you. He's obsessed with that love. And you have an indestructible attachment to Him through grace. Wow. When you know someone forgives you that way, you have a spiritual, emotional desire to please them that's pure. You might have some impurity there with it, but you do have this pure desire to do what's best for them. And that's what James says, the Spirit intensely, what? Envies for. He wants to look into the heart of a Christian and see that because they believe He's a gracious God, that, that you will actually choose out of faith and love to do the right thing, even if it's kind of like messy and it's like an easy-bake oven cake and it isn't all that great. You're doing it for the right motives. And he says, I yearn for the heart to be right. And it's made right by grace. Have you ever heard the term repurpose? We get a, we get a, a house that's no longer what we wanted it to be and we might repurpose it. A couple might say, I'm going to rent that house out and go to another house. We'll repurpose it. We'll make it a rent house. At Holy Word Austin, we're going to repurpose the school building to after-school care, and this summer it was repurposed as a, a summer program for a sports program that a coach brought to us. It's repurposed. You repurpose a car by giving, you know, passing it down to your kids. Well, how about repurposing yourself? You were dedicated to me and the advancement, and now you've repurposed. Just as passionate about life, just as passionate about your job and quantity, but a whole different quality. Now you've repurposed it to serve. You're serving God and serving your family and serving society and serving your coworkers and serving your clients and you're serving everybody out of love. Only love can make love like that. So now keep the ninth and tenth commandment out of love, not out of fear. The commandments only bring fear, but the love of Christ brings faith, love, and an obedience that comes from faith. Not perfect performance, but purity of motive. And that is the exclamation point on a series on the Ten Commandments. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for giving us the law and the gospel. Thank you for your son for being obsessed with us. And thank you for this hour of worship that was put together 
so we as mere sinners could come again and see your pure word. Let us help us by your Holy Spirit that's in us yearning jealously. Help us this week to sense when you're telling us, come back to what I taught you. We want to be ready and be able to live the way that you hope where you live in our heart can be happy with us as our best friend. All these things we ask for your son Jesus' sake. Amen.